According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again. I said this last time that we were going to wrap up uh, chapter 18, and I think it's likely true this time. We will wrap up chapter 18. That promises, I know. And uh, then, of course, chapter 19. Also, uh, in case I forget to announce that we have today and we have next week. Today is the 11th. Next week is the 18th. And so they will be our final two today and next week will be our final two Wednesdays uh, here. Uh, we'll take a break for the holidays. We won't be here Christmas morning or evening, by the way, canceling the Wednesday schedule uh, for Christmas and for New Year's. So a couple of weeks at the end of the month, we're going to be Sunday-only believers and uh, SOB, which my wife says, you need a better acronym than SOB for Sunday-only believers. But I don't know what she means, but that's... Uh, <laughs> Back to my army days, I think there was a abbreviation there, but any event. So now you know, that's the schedule. The uh, poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And thank God for that. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer and then uh, get right back to our study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you for this Proverbs series and now uh, 18 completed chapters and looking forward to uh, what you have for us in, uh, in the upcoming chapters. But just thank you for being faithful, Father, and open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we outlined point 10... Chapter 18 closes with social life wisdom in the contrast of rich and poor. And really, chapter 19 will also feature this. Uh, you'll notice in some of those early verses there, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than uh, he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. So again, there's socioeconomic uh, status that's being mentioned there. Uh, down to verse 4, wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. So these, these dynamics between the rich and the poor that we have at the end of chapter 18 uh, will come back again very shortly uh, in the early verses of, of chapter 19. But what I call social life wisdom, uh, in other words, the dynamic of people in society, in culture, in public, as, uh, as you're dealing with somebody in a, in a face-to-face interaction, and what happens when clearly you're face-to-face with somebody that is much higher than you in the social uh, uh, status or much lower than you in the social status. If, uh, if there is a great disparity between two people, then it affects how they interact. It affects how they speak. Not saying that it's right, it's just what it is based upon, I think, this fallen world. But speech patterns are dynamic, reflecting the relative social standing of the people speaking. And uh, the poor and needy uh, will be very um, sweet-talking and kind and, and uh, uh, deferential and, and respectful. And uh, as it says here, uh, the poor man utters supplications. And uh, he knows he has no claim on anything. He knows he can't demand anything. He knows he can't order anybody around. 
Um, but then the rich man is going to be very rough. And we looked at these last week. I don't want to repeat what we were doing last week, but the poor desperately cry for grace. And of the various terms from Hanan or Tachina, which we would expect, this is actually not so expected. The, the Tachnun that's not used as frequently as the others and, and really is an unusual formation anyway with the noon ending on it. The Tachnun supplications, uh, I thought was a worthwhile endeavor to look at the, the uses there from Job 41, Jeremiah 3, Daniel 9, we were just in Daniel 9 this morning, actually. Zechariah 12, 10. And uh, the prophecies related to how abject, worthless Israel is when they call upon their Savior to deliver them. Uh, they have no merit, no claim. It is an utter supplication of utter uh, worthlessness. And that's uh, the expression here of the poor man in Proverbs eight twenty three. Whereas the rich answers roughly. As, uh, you know, uh, Joseph to his brothers in uh, Genesis 42, or Pharaoh to, to Moses in Exodus chapter 5, or uh, uh, Nabal to David's shepherds or David's uh, soldiers in 1 Samuel 25, the rough answer basically is uh, a prideful answer. It's the answer of somebody that has authority, has power, has uh, no need to help you and no desire to help you and go away. It's a very rough, dismissive attitude that uh, is reflected in that arrogance. The rich man uh, uh, answers roughly. All right, which, which then takes us to verse 24. Yeah, such, is, such may be the way of the fallen world, but the body of Christ has different standards. And that's uh, James 2. I think James 2 is our takeaway application uh, that keeps us from showing favoritism, whereby uh, if we have a rich man that comes in and a poor man that comes in, that we don't fawn all over the rich man and ignore the poor man and say, well, you sit over there and, and, and uh, the issues there. That's James 2, verses 2 and 3, which I think serves as a New Testament corollary here to Proverbs eighteen twenty three. It keeps us from imitating the world's operation in, in that kind of speech. All right. Then in verse 24, the contrast of the many with the one, the contrast with the friends with the lover. And uh, many casual friends are a pending wreckage. We say it's a train wreck waiting to happen, right? Uh, that's what happens with many friends, a man of friends. And I don't think it's an issue of too many, although the words too many are put in italics there to try to expand upon what the Hebrew is really saying, but it's just simply a man of friends. It's the, the Ish Ra'im, it's the man of friends. And so it's like a man of sorrows or a man of, of, uh, a man of something, a man of righteousness, a man of something. That's what characterizes him. And so a man of friends is the guy that just, uh, that's, that's what characterizes him. Everybody, he's a friend to everybody and everybody's a friend to him. He lives for his friendships. And uh, that kind of a life, that kind of a, a, um, an attitude is on the way to destruction. I mean, it is pending, as it says here, ruin. It comes to ruin. But one neighbor-loving friend is closer than even a brother, and that's the principle being spelled out here. And so why is it a problem to have too many friends in, uh, in the issue there? Well, the... Uh, the Ish Ra'im, as I mentioned, the man of friends, 
uh, he's going to discover the shallowness of being a friend to everyone. This is going to be expanded uh, shortly in chapter 19. Wealth adds many friends. <laughs> you know, all you got to do is have some money and you'd be surprised how many friends show up out of nowhere. And um, also verse 6, many will seek the favor of a generous man. And every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. And, uh, you know, if you want to be popular, this is a way to do it. Just give gifts to everybody and just throw money around and be very generous. And you can make a lot of friends, you know, be a mile wide and one inch deep as far as the, the breadth of those friendships is concerned. Very shallow. And, uh, and as 1824 says, it leads to ruin. It leads to ruin because how long can you keep that up? How, um, you know, how long can you keep buying friends everywhere? And how long, I mean, eventually, you just, you just get tired and, and, or broke or both. And you realize, I can't afford this lifestyle. I can't afford to maintain this, this, uh, this image. And, and they're not real friends anyway, because they turn on you when, uh, when the spigot dries up and, and the issues there. So the shallowness of being a friend to everyone. And quite frankly, you shouldn't be a friend to everyone. The friendship, uh, when you truly understand what friendship is and the love that's expected of a friend, of a neighbor, to love your neighbor, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, you realize that friendship is a, is a grace provision and you should uh, appreciate it, you should cultivate it, you should nurture it, and you shouldn't cheapen it by um, putting everybody in that same category. We have, to, we have to properly identify who's our brother, who's our friend, who's our neighbor, and have the appropriate relationships and the appropriate boundaries uh, with the, the different levels of intimacy that, that uh, the Word of God describes. All right, so we have the issue there. Now, last week, and we, this is a little bit review, but I was going fast because we were running out of time. Also, I had thrown out a comment that was just off the top of my head and it wasn't on the slide. So this week it's on the slide. This week I added Deuteronomy 13 and verse 6 to the slide that you didn't see last week. So let's take a look at that. Uh, Deuteronomy 13 and verse 6. The idea about a close friend that stands out as being different, being special, All right, and so Deuteronomy 13 and verse 6. If your brother, let's see, I guess we can just hit it right at verse 6. We don't need the context of 1 through 5 there. But if your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who who is as your own soul, entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. And so this is a warning against idolatry and about getting caught up in idolatry and having other people influence you to get involved with idolatry. And uh, there's a whole thing you can preach on idolatry there. Your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, No matter how close a friend that he is, you shall surely kill him. And your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. Remember when Jesus said, let him cast the first stone? There's a principle about first stone and first your hand to be first. 
And this is a passage that employs that principle. Anyway, beyond the idolatry issues and, and, and that, notice this list of, of proximity, this list of friends and, and family members and, and loved ones. So it starts with your brother. If your brother, your mother's son, or, or your son, or daughter, or the wife you cherish, as opposed to the wife you don't cherish. <laughs> All right? But we have these relationships, and they're designed to communicate that it's going to be hard in many cases because you're going to want to bend the rules. You're going to want to excuse things. You're going to want to, uh, you don't want to report them as being an idol worshiper because you love them. And if you report them, they're going to be, they're going to be killed. Israel was a theocracy, the covenant nation. The, the uh, idolatry was not permitted. They were not a pluralistic culture. America was founded as a pluralistic culture, that we have freedom. And so you can be a Christian, you can be a Jew, you can be a Muslim, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a, a Mormon, you can be whatever. And, and have the same freedom of conscience, freedom of faith, freedom of, of worship. And, and I know that can be frustrating sometimes. We wonder, why are we letting these Muslims in here? Uh, and sometimes we, we stop and say, wait a minute, can we modify the First Amendment maybe and limit it to just Christian religions? <laughs> Is that possible? Um, different discussion. Let me get off of that. But the, um, the freedom that we have, now Israel was not pluralistic. Israel was the covenant nation and Yahweh Elohim was the Lord God of Israel. And commandment number one is what? Well, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right, and you shall not make a, an idol. Uh, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments now, not the two. But you're right. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two great commandments that summarize the, uh, the other 613. The point I'm illustrating here, though, is that um, these are degrees of intimacy within family relationships, friendship relationships, and uh, and so forth, and and you know what could be more, what could be more intimate than a wife? You know the marital relationship is designed to be, um, to be the the, the pinnacle of this, where uh, you have this. But then it also says, or your friend who is as your own soul. Now that's what marriage should be, and that's what ideally marriage is and becomes as you grow together, as heirs together of the grace of life. And, and so that would be included in the marriage relationship. But this verse actually separates it out as something even beyond marriage. Have you noticed that? I mean, we go from brother to mother's son to sons of your daughter, son or, son or daughter, the wife you cherish. So at each stage, we're getting closer. That, that you should have more affection for your offspring than you do for your siblings just as a degree of, of intimacy and, and love. And then your spouse is even greater than your offspring. Okay, So if you're putting a prioritized list together, if these are the people I'm going to rat out to the government, um, <laughs> you know, your siblings get ratted out before your children. Your children get ratted out before your wife. All right. But then, beyond the wife you cherish is the friend who is as your own soul. Your friend who is as your own soul. 
And so this is the friend that is even closer than a brother. This is the expression that has its parallel in our proverb this morning, in Proverbs 18.24. The friend who is as your own soul. And it's rare. It's rare. We have examples in the Bible, just a handful, that are described in these terms. David and Jonathan are the most famous. And uh, to have a friend of this spiritual degree requires a tremendous amount of spiritual maturity, walking before the Lord like mindedness in, in, in spiritual things. And so we'll, uh, we'll describe that. In fact, we'll, it'll come up in the subpoints. And like I say, I added the Deuteronomy 13 and verse 6 reference. So uh, you think about the things that draw you together. We talk about the camaraderie, for example, of, of, uh, of uh, the esprit de corps of combat veterans that have gone through war together, that have been in the foxhole together. And, and that happens, and that happens in, earth, in the earthly terms, but then carry it forward to the angelic conflict and think of it in spiritual terms. The esprit de corps that David and Jonathan had as mature believers that, uh, that, that learned the Word of God together and grew the Word of God together and, and applied the Word of God together and uh, the, the spiritual battles they had, <laughs> even when Jonathan's dad kept trying to kill David. <laughs> okay, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that would put a damper on, on a human relationship, you know. I'd have a hard time being buddies with a guy if his dad kept trying to kill me. If it was just a, a casual, you know, earthly friendship or, uh, you know, if we were Scrabble friends or baseball friends or something. But such was the intimacy between Jonathan and David that even Saul's attempted murder on David never never affected that. And it's, it's interesting. All right. So the man of friends will discover the shallowness of being a friend to everyone. But the ohave, the ohave. Now the Hebrew ohave, it's a participle from the verb ahav, and it means to love. It means to love. And it's, um, we don't have the, the strict parallels in Hebrew like we do in Greek, so it's not like we can build a, a case uh, with agape and phileo and storgos and, and different Greek expressions. Um, we have ahav as, as a love word, and it's the primary love word of, of the Old Testament. And um, it's not the sexual love word, that's, that's dode uh, that, that you'll find in Song of Solomon and, and elsewhere. But ahav, this is more than just a friend, okay? And in Hebrews, uh, not Hebrews, but in um, Proverbs 18.24 the English translation has friends twice, and it bugs me to death because the first friend is the rape, which is a real friend, sometimes neighbor, sometimes friend. But then the second friend, the friend that sticks closer than a brother, it's a different Hebrew word. It's the word ohave. It's the word for lover. The word for lover. And, uh, and I like the translation lover. I'm okay with it. It's not, you know, the problem is, is in our culture, we immediately, you know, lover communicates something carnal. But, um, but a lover, in other words, a believer that's properly applying Leviticus 19.18, he's loving the Lord God and he's loving his neighbor as himself, we would call them a lover. The Bible calls them a lover. The Bible will call them an ohave. And so the ohave is, uh, that's the best friend you'll ever have. Because he loves the Lord God and he loves his neighbor as himself. That's the best friend you'll ever have when you encounter a true ohave. And he'll stick closer than a brother. So, 
Um, Leviticus 19.18. If you're familiar with these. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And that word neighbor is the word for friend, that rate. We've talked about that. The same rate that speaks of friend is the same rate that speaks of neighbor. And the, and the, the Bible uses the same Hebrew word for both friend and neighbor. I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> All right. So... Uh, I don't know what the Hebrew committees had to do when, the, when translation committees would sit down and, and they, they're working on a text. And how many fights did they have over the use of friend or the use of neighbor every time they came to the, to the, to the rate vocabulary? But that's the, uh, the command, to love your neighbor as yourself. And of course to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The... Um, Proverbs seventeen seventeen. We just had this a chapter ago. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So here's the rate, the friend who loves Ahav, loves at all times. So the friend that loves would be called the lover, would be called the Ohave, more than just a friend. The friend that's after your money can still be called a friend, but he wouldn't be called a lover. He wouldn't be called an ohave, a lover. And that's what we're looking for. We also had some study notes. If you want to go back through your notes, find the things that we developed in Proverbs 20, uh, 14 and verse 20. Find the things that we developed in Proverbs 17, 17. And you'll have some, some principles that were listed there in your notes. Proverbs 14.20 says, The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. And uh, what a shallow existence, but that's the way the world works, is that uh, the, the poor, what, what can he do for me? What, uh, you know, why, why would I spend time with him? Why would I waste my time on him? Uh, but then the rich, oh yeah, yeah, let's, 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 let's do something. So there's the favoritism that's shown there. And we had some points of study that were listed in that reference as well. All right. So I keep thinking that I have the wrong verse on this slide because what I intended to do with that second point, a friend who loves God and loves his neighbor, I wanted to give the you shall love the Lord your God verse and you shall love your neighbor verse and I got it right with the Leviticus 19.18 love your neighbor verse, but I did not get it right with the uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay, So that, that should be on the slide as well. And I will make a note to add verse. Alright. Where is that verse? Mark? Well, it comes from the Old Testament, though. Yeah. Okay. Right? You want to sing it? Uh, Doug's not here this morning. Pray for Doug. He's, he's struggling. 
Here we go. We were looking at Daniel 9 this morning. Get me going on that and we'll spend a whole hour. Love, Lord, God, heart. Deuteronomy 6.5. As powerful as this software is, it's like Google. I think it's making us stupid. <laughs> I think we're, we're training ourselves not to remember things. Because why remember it if you can just type love, Lord, God, heart, and it says, well, dummy, you're thinking about Deuteronomy 6.5. Yeah, that's right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, which means you need to memorize them. Teach them diligently to your sons. All right, so Deuteronomy 6.5 is going to get added to the notes. Now, Jonathan and David had this level of God and neighbor loving friendship. Jonathan and David, and they're the best example anywhere in the scriptures. I think we could find more, um, but they're just not as explicitly presented as as these. Uh, Jonathan and David, 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 20, 2 Samuel 1, after Jonathan dies, the eulogy that David gives is, is marvelous. 1 Samuel 18. First Samuel 18, now it came about and uh, when he had finished speaking, this is after, what's chapter 17? David and Goliath, okay, <laughs> and then after that um, he's presented, presented to David and gets the full background here. Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. So it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Now the knitting of souls, the actual knitting of souls together, where they're stitched together, where they're, they're, they're connected, that's the pinnacle of, of intimacy, of friendship intimacy for two souls to be connected. And normally that takes place in the marriage relationship. That this is one of the effects of uh, the fact, of course, that the, the, the marriage act is, is not just a physical thing between bodies, but it's also a, uh, a spiritual dynamic between souls. And the knitting of souls together is spoken of, uh, even with, uh, with Dinah, for example, in the book of Genesis. And that's a terrible, because that was a rape circumstance. But even in that circumstance, afterwards, when Shechem regretted it and began to love her, he uses the same language, that my soul is knit to the soul of Dinah, your daughter. And, and Shechem wanted to be honorable and, and marry her after the, the terrible thing. Anyway, this is the kind of language that speaks of this. And I think uh, Deuteronomy 13 speaks of this as well, related to marriage leading into this soul intimacy, where you are as one. So the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And this is the Ahav love. And it's not based on secular, uh, it's not based upon um, 
the, the, the battlefield prowess that he was such a skilled warrior and that he, he killed the giant. It was because as a man of faith, David stood up and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that is taunting the armies of the living God? And Jonathan immediately said, that's a God-fearing believer right there. That's, I mean, it's like he wanted to say it, like words that wanted to come out of his mouth, but he couldn't bring himself to because it would have shamed his own dad. You know, why did Saul's the king? Why doesn't Saul go out and defend his people? Why wasn't Saul out? He had the armor, he had the weapons. Go stand against the giant. You're the anointed king of Israel. But he wouldn't do it. And I think Jonathan wanted to, but couldn't. And David actually did. And so uh, Jonathan came to love him. So Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. He gets attached to the house of Saul from this moment forward. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And this is one of the rare examples of a human-to-human covenant that we have in the, in the Old Testament. Normally the covenants we study are between God and Israel or God and humans, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and so forth. Typically when we study covenants, they're between God and man. But this is between man and man. And this is between Jonathan who is Saul's heir, who in human terms would be eligible to claim the throne, that he would inherit the throne upon Saul's death. But he's making a covenant here to disclaim the throne. He's making a covenant to, uh, with David. And, and read what he says here. He made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. He's the crown prince, but he's giving his robe to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him. He becomes a military commander, but he's armored with Jonathan's armor. Went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul sent him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, also in the sight of Saul's servants. And so this friendship, this love relationship between Jonathan and David is, uh, is powerful. And it blessed the people. It blessed the, the household staff. It blessed the administration, the palace uh, administration. And the whole nation benefits by having David leading the armies. And uh, I'll keep going past verse 5 here just a little bit. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played. And this is what gets David in trouble. The song, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And that's not cool with Saul, okay? (laughs) That crossed a line. So Saul became very angry. For this saying displeased him. And uh, so he looked with David, at David with suspicion from that day on. He does not have the soul capacity that Jonathan has. Because he should love David just as much. But he doesn't have that soul capacity. And this is uh, to, to have that kind of friendship. So... Um, anyway, this is where the... the, the the spear gets hurled and David has to dodge and not get pinned to the wall and, and the different things there. 
Um, skipping ahead, get through some of these other details. Because even after the first murder attempt, um, then he gives his daughter to David. And I wonder what kind of murder attempt was that? <laughs> you know, what, uh, is that worse than the spear? What's going on there? She doesn't seem to be a godly woman. She's pretty scornful on a later occasion. Didn't have the capacity to celebrate when the ark is returned. Get down to chapter uh, 20. Uh, so David has to flee again. One of several fleeing occasions. From Nioth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? And so even in this escape uh, uh, event, he has the opportunity to fellowship with Jonathan, to discuss scripture, to discuss spiritual realities. So he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And um, here's the, the family dynamics that the crown prince, the heir, thinks that uh, there's no secrets kept from him, but lo and behold, there are. That Saul, uh, such as his hatred for David, that he's kept, uh, kept Jonathan in the dark. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let um, Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. And so he's kept out of the loop. Not the first parents in the history of the world that were displeased with the choice of friends that their children have made. <laughs> uh, but this is, though, completely wrong on Saul's part. David and Jonathan was the best friendship ever, and, and Saul should have been delighted more than anything. But truly, as the Lord lives, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. These, these expressions are so powerful. He is the living God. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives. Obviously, David is connected to Jonathan's soul and he has a, an appreciation for Jonathan's soul life as, uh, as, a, as a lover of the living God. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. There's no, there's no line in the sand. There's no limit to their friendship. So David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I ought to sit down to eat with the king. I guess that was the procedure or the tradition that uh, on the new moon. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. Just making up an excuse uh, to not be there at the new moon. And if he says it is good, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. So this is a little test that David and Jonathan come up with to gauge Saul's reaction. And uh, therefore deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. This covenant that they made, they made together, two parties together making a covenant, but they called the Lord as their witness. So he's in that covenant obligation. It's like when you stand at the altar and uh, standing, you're not just standing before a preacher in a suit and tie holding a Bible. When you're, when you're entering that marriage covenant, that's a covenant. 
between two parties, and God is your witness. So, uh, you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? He's willing to die if he's done something wrong and he's unaware of it. It'll be a sin of omission or a sin of of ignorance or, or some offense. If he has offended against the anointed of the Lord, the King of Israel, He's willing to to pay the price for that. He just requests that his friend be the one to do it. So, the uh, Jonathan's reply then, far be it from you, if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? So David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers harshly? You know, you're going to be followed. (laughs) He's going to have agents watching you and wherever you go, if you're going to come out and find me. So they put this, this is kind of a nifty little thing they do here. Um, Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out to the field. So both of them went out to the field and Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, because remember it might be the first day, might be the second day. Um, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, then I shall, uh, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you. If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety and may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. So this is the, the procedure they put into place and it's so cool how they do this. If I am still alive, wow, Will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? And so it's, it's a bit prophetic even as, as Joshua, as Jonathan speaks of this um, because he will die with, with Saul when Saul dies. But, but he doesn't know that. And, and there might be an occasion in which Saul will die and David will become the next king and that David might show uh, favor to, to Jonathan, let Jonathan live which no pagan king in the ancient world would even dream about doing. Keeping the son alive from the former king, are you kidding me? That's a threat. You've got to kill the whole house to bring in a new house. So um, he, he makes that request in verse 14. You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Because David is also anointed of the Lord. So uh, Jonathan doesn't want to be counted as an enemy of David, even though his father is an enemy of David. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord require it at the the hands of David's enemies. So Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own nephesh, as he loved his own soul, his own life. And this is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. This is the Ohave, the lover. Loves the Lord God and loves his neighbor as himself. As himself. So, uh, Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon, you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to this place, to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day. And uh, you shall remain by the stone ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. Now what kind of faith does David have? (laughs) Jonathan's firing arrows his direction. All right. Behold, I will send the lad saying, go find the arrows. 
if I specifically say to the lad, behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come, for there is safety for you and no harm as the Lord lives. So David's going to watch where those arrows land and where this boy goes out to fetch them. And, and he'll know based upon that that it's safe and he can follow the boy in and return to Saul's house. But if I say to the youth, behold, the arrows are beyond you, go for the Lord has sent you away. So that's the signal. And the boy is going to be oblivious to all of this. The, the, the servant boy is going to be, he's just the unwitting um, instrument. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. That's an eternal covenant, and regardless of how this arrow thing turns out, it still stands between uh, Jonathan and David. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food, and the king sat on his seat, as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought it is an accident. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. So something happened that kept David from, I mean, it was a sacred occasion. The new moon festival, you had to be, you couldn't partake in an unclean manner. Uh, touching a dead body, David did a lot of that. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, sexual relations with your wife, that would leave you ceremonially unclean. Other things would leave you unclean. But now on the second night, the second day of the new moon, David's place was again empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal either yesterday or today? And so the pre-agreed on excuse, Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. Now this is a lie. He's lying to his father. Is he breaking the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not lie. Is he carnal? You see, this is a covenant between Jonathan and David. And this is... Um, what we might call cloak and dagger. It's uh, espionage. It's, uh, it's a cover story. Rahab did the same thing, and she's in Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith. All right. For he said, please let me go. Our family has a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So it's a rational explanation. It's natural. He's got divided loyalties. He's got to honor his father and mother. He's got to honor his brethren. Going back to Bethlehem and take part in an annual sacrifice there. Um, and that he had respectfully requested Jonathan to uh, for this. And Jonathan said, sure. Well, uh, if, if Saul is godly, he will not object here. He will accept the explanation. But obviously, in verse 30, Saul's anger burned. <laughs> All right. Bad, uh, bad news here for, for Saul. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. <laughs> He's talking about his own wife at this point, Jonathan's mother. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame? That's twice he called him the son of Jesse. Do you notice that? Who is Jesse. Jesse was not a big deal. And, and Jesse was mocked repeatedly, even by his own sons, by Saul, by others, uh, by, um, there's a later episode when, when David is fleeing the throne and, and Jesse gets mocked again for being this insignificant Ephrathite. 
you son of, you're choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. In other words, you're my son, your mother's son, we birthed you. And um, why are you taking that friendship and elevating it over your family duties, your family responsibility? Remember the the levels of, of, uh, you know, who do you turn in first? And there's siblings, and then there's offspring, and then there's your spouse, and then there's the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Okay? This soul-united love, lover of God, lover of neighbor. To the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And Saul thinks that's a terrible thing. And Jonathan thinks it's a marvelous thing. <laughs> Jonathan is not uh, worried about the, the Jonathan dynasty. He knows there won't be one. He knows that the kingdom has been ripped from Saul. It's been given to someone better than Saul. That David is the man after God's own heart. That it will be the throne of David. I, I suspect he may even, I mean, they spoke with prophetic utterance. Did they have an understanding of the, the, the future Messiah? That his sole friend David had the seed of Jesus Christ within him? What a, what a capacity that they had. And all Saul can think about is carrying on the lineage of Saul, the line of Saul, through the line of Jonathan. So as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Now this is the kind of confrontation he couldn't bring himself to do in chapter 17. He could not bring himself to stand before his father and say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he taunts the armies of the living God? But clearly in the years since then, his love with David has matured him and the the faith that he has now before the Lord allows him to stand before his father and speak truth. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him down. So Jonathan knew his father had decided to put David to death. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. Is he carnal at this point? No, I think it's a righteous indignation. He did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. And so they go out to the field. Jonathan and this uh, little boy, don't know his name, went into the field for the appointment with David. And this little guy gets to be the uh, unwitting tool. He said, run, find now the arrows which I'm about to shoot. As the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. When the lad reached out the place where the arrow with Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, uh, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow, came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. So Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad, said to him, Go, bring them into the city. And then... uh, the final time, I think this is the final time that David and Jonathan ever meet face to face. Verse 41, when the lad was gone, David rose from the south side, fell on his face to the ground, bowed three times. They kissed each other, wept together, but David wept the more. And Jonathan said to David, go in safety, 
Inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord will be between me and you, between my descendants and your descendants forever, he arose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. So this is, uh, I think, the last time that they meet. At the end of 1 Samuel is when Samuel died, or when Saul dies and Jonathan. The report of which comes to him in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. We'll have to finish with that. 2 Samuel 1. Oh, I've got to quickly. I've got to get through this and then through point C. So in 2 Samuel chapter 1, the report comes. In fact, this rascal shows up thinking he's going to get a reward. <laughs> he thinks that if he brings the happy news to David that he's going to get a prize for, uh, for uh, bringing the, the news. And, and David just weeps. And uh, yeah, he puts him, puts him to death. This uh, rascal gets put to the sword in verse 15. But the song here, David chants a lament over Saul and um, in verse 17, over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. And, and this is going to become a tradition in, in Israel. As it is written in the book of Jashar, your beauty, O Israel. Anyway, you can read through all this. I've got to hurry. Um, that uh, Saul and Jonathan, verse 23, beloved and pleasant in their life, in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. In their death they were not parted. And people try to prove to me that Saul was an unbeliever. I say he was a believer. He just died the sin unto death. And, uh, and he went to the same place Jonathan went to because in death they were not parted. So, uh, you know, to me it's proof that Saul was saved. He was just uh, in reversionism for most of the end of his life. Then, um, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. This is a powerful verse, and it sickens me what the homosexuals do when they pervert this. Because he says, your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. Than the love of women. Okay? And again, we have parents or siblings, children, spouse, and then the sole friend. That's the order. And this is what David is saying here. And David's not saying that it's okay to be gay and that this kind of love can be more beautiful than heterosexual love and blah, blah, blah. That is a blasphemy of this text. Uh, more beautiful than the, the love of women. And honestly, David cursed himself. David struggled in his marital relationships. Uh, he didn't have, because of his polygamy, he did not have the, the capacity to love Abigail or to love uh, any of his wives because he had too many. Um, he never could have a soul love with any wife, I, I think until Bathsheba. I think finally with Bathsheba, he finally was able to to get, which is after this event, he was finally able to get a soul love with a woman that he had never had before with anyone other than other than Jonathan. But your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. Not the love of a woman, a faithful wife in a one-man, one-woman relationship. He says the love of women, plural, as uh, being the polygamist that he was. All right. Soul friendship. Finally then, 
this friend, the Proverbs 18 friend, is often understood to be the Messiah. And I think it is in some Jewish traditions, but mostly it's because of the hindsight of the Gospel of John. This friend is often understood to be the Messiah, based on John 13, 1 and John 15. Uh, If that understanding is correct, which I think is at best a secondary sense for this passage, but if that understanding is correct, then the Proverbs 18, 24 man of friends needs to meet the Isaiah 53, 3 man of sorrows. That man of friends needs to meet the man of sorrows. All right. John 13. And then there's no question. I mean, the, the passages in John say what they say. So I don't know that it's a terrible thing to take it then and put it back into Proverbs 18 or not. Um, be that as a man. I'm, I'm not as sold on it. But um, John 13, 1 says, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. So he was a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He was a friend that loves without limits. He loved them to the end. And then in John 15, he says, I call you friends. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. In other words, to the end, without limits. The uttermost love, the no greater love. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And so we have these principles. They're principles of agape love. They're principles of church-age friendship. They're principles of the Philadelphia that we're to have in the body of Christ. They are principles that, that are precious in our stewardship for our application. But on the basis of these references, a lot of commentators then take and kind of put this back into Proverbs 18 and they read, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And they say, aha, That's a prophecy, that's a messianic prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm not, I don't think we have to do that. I don't think we even maybe should do that. At best, it's a secondary sense for the Proverbs passage. I think the Proverbs passage stands on its own. The Proverbs passage speaks to the David and, and Jonathan kind of soul unity friendship that happens when two believers love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength then those two believers can love one another as themselves. So I prefer to keep, um, not really take it as a prophecy, but in any event, the man of friends does need to meet the man of sorrows. I I think that's interesting. Jesus has never called a man of friends. He's called a man of sorrows in in Isaiah 53.3. One from whom men hide their face. So that's not conducive to deep personal friendships. <laughs> if, if people turn away and don't look at you every time you, you approach them, that doesn't build friendships. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their face. And there's the issue there. All right, well that then concludes, I promised, chapter 18. Next week we'll get our first look at Proverbs 19 and then, um, 
And then uh, well, that's the only, that's the final remaining Wednesday morning for December. Uh, if you come on Christmas morning, you'll find an empty building. And if you come on New Year's morning, you're going to find an empty building. So because we will have been here till midnight on New Year's Eve and uh, no one's going to be here to teach Proverbs at 10 o'clock on New Year's morning. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your truth. Pray for those that, uh, like Doug and others, Father, the sickness is is uh, keeping them from teaching. And Father, we know they love the teaching. They'd be here if they could. So restore their health and, and bless them. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.